This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Hussein, director of the Leadership Center here, and I'm with Anne Greenhall, who is the uh, deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program, also here at the University of Pennsylvania. You can get new episodes of our show every Friday at 9 a.m. We're right here. You can also follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. So um, in a minute, I'm going to introduce our guest, but as Anne is our custom, you and I are just going to warm up on the great topic of leadership. So Anne, here's a tough question. And you're All right, I'm ready. Back of me. Uh, we're looking at an election uh, not that many days away, thinking not in a partisan way, but just thinking about the leadership during the, um, the electoral process, now, the election coming up, the campaigning. Is there anything that really stands out in your mind that is notable for people who want to think about their own leadership? Yes, Mike. Now, I appreciate that question. It's a tough one, but here's what comes to mind really quickly. I'm actually reminded of a former guest on the show, someone you know quite well, and that's Phil Tetlock, who talks about the ability to look forward and into the future. And who is best poised to do that? And he has a metaphor. Is it the hedgehog or the fox? Do we go deep or do we look broadly? And I think what Phil would recommend is that we look broadly. So leadership is about anticipating the future, anticipating what's on the horizon. So I think the advice that I would give myself is to try to look broadly rather than deep in order to imagine the outcome of the election. Uh, My quick reaction is totally true. And then just to add my thought, and then we're going to bring in our guest. This is all a segue into uh, a great book we're going to be talking about. And that is uh, lots of academic research recurrently confirms that leadership makes greatest difference when the world is changing. There is uncertainty out there. And boy, do we have a lot of that right now. So stay tuned. This election is going to be obviously decisive. And it's probably going to shape what's going to happen for the next Mm-hmm. Um, let's make it 10 years to get us to 2030. And I mention that intentionally because we have today with us the author of a new book. The title is 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. So, Mauro Gian, great to have you on the show. Thank you, both Anne and Mike, uh, for inviting me. It's great to have you here, Mauro. And just a couple words about you. You're a uh, a fellow faculty member here, you're a sociologist, you've been trained in business, uh, you offer courses uh, for MBA students, undergraduate, to mid-career people that uh, I think have set some records in terms of the number of people who have uh, been in one of your courses. You ran a course this spring, I think, that had something like 2,000 students in it, uh, but you also reach out through a, a just a range of electronic media these days and including Coursera and edX. And Mauro, just to get us going, wonderful to have you here. Wonderful to see your new book. It is, by the way, on the Wall Street Journal's bestseller list as we speak. Great to see that. I'm going to ask the obvious question to warm us up on on getting into this now. 
why 2030? Why not 2025? Why not 2035? Why is that a pivot point? Carl, welcome. Thank you so much, Mike. And that, that is, I think, a very important question. You see, I've been uh, trying over the last uh, few years to persuade people uh, that we need to think about the future. Uh, because as you just pointed out, there's so much change going on. And then the question is, on what, uh, you know, what type of uh, time horizon uh, do you focus your attention on? And when I listen to executives, when I listen to ordinary people, I also, as you know, make a lot of presentations to high school students. Uh, you know, they feel comfortable uh, with a 10-year time horizon uh, because it's, uh, you know, enough to gain some perspective. But at the same time, it's not so far into the future that maybe the assumptions that you make are impossible. And I think the answer as to why, uh, you know, in the context, in the present context, it makes sense is um, in the title of the first chapter of the book, Follow the Babies. So uh, I uh, use this methodology based on demography that the best way to anticipate the future is to really to study what's going on with population trends. And I think we're on safe ground when we're making projections uh, about 10 years down the road. And by that year, as I'm sure we're going to get into in the uh, next uh, few minutes, there's going to be so many turning points, so many ways in which the world is going to be completely different from the world in which we grew up, that it makes sense to adopt that time horizon. And I really like the, the argument that 10 years out is sort of, it's almost just human. We kind of want to know where we're going to be. If we talk 100 years, uh, I think our eyes glaze over a little bit. Although I will note, and Mauro, I think you know this, some Japanese firms are reputed to do 100-year strategic plans. So that's real forward thinking. But 10 years for the American mind, I think, sounds about right. And uh, let's t then to jump to the last word in the title, the first word or the first phrase is 2030. The last word is everything. How is this going to shape everything? And tell us what you include in everything. Yeah, so essentially, I include three things, right? And of course, you know, everything is a mild exaggeration there. Yeah. Um, but I focus in the book on three aspects. So one is, I just mentioned, population trends. The second one is economic trends, especially having to do with the middle class and with emerging markets. And then the third is technology and the adoption of technology. And the book precisely brings all those three things together. Uh, what I'm trying to argue is that those three things come together. And the reason why we have major transformations ahead is because those three types of trends are converging on one another. And they're going to produce a very different situation. And to make that, uh, or to put that tangibly in front of us, um, let's say I'm growing up in Nairobi. You've got an example uh, early in your book there of a, a woman back in Nairobi. And how should I think about that? What should I be thinking about as I cast my eyes on 2030? Um, make it Nairobi, make it Riyadh, make it Hong Kong. What's, what's most on my mind? What should most be on my mind? Well, uh, let me use the example of Africa. I think we've neglected Africa for a long time, and perhaps because uh, you know it was a messy place, and it didn't have the scale uh, the size to really change the global dynamic. But you see, between now and the year 2030, 400 million babies are going to be born in Africa. And by that year, precisely 2030, Africa is going to become the second largest region in the world by population after South Asia, which includes, of course, India. And, you know, Africa is interesting because they've been ahead of us. Um, telemedicine, 
mobile payments, um, e-voting, right? Voting electronically, all of these things, they're ahead of us out of necessity. Now we find ourselves out of necessity doing things that we never thought we would do because of the pandemic. But you see, Africa has been doing that for a long time. So in the book, I present this part of the world as one in, from which I think we can learn many lessons. It's no longer a basket case. It's no longer a place that, you know, we feel bad for. Um, Nairobi is one of those big cities in Africa, which is uh, changing the world because we see the emerging middle class actually uh, developing. And we see a middle class that is interconnected, uh, that has a smartphone. Uh, it's a middle class that no longer uses cash. It's a middle class that is as ahead as, uh, you know, developed as ours, but it is expanding unlike ours. So that's the world in 2030. The world in 2030 is all of these big surprises somewhere in the world that remind us we're not alone in the universe. And hey, we've got a lot of things to learn from them. Well, I'm going to hand this over to Anne, though, with my uh, just editorial closing here. We better pay attention. We, we tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe. But our universe, the world, is uh, changing in ways that we ought to pay a lot of attention to. Anne, over to you. Good. Thank you, Mike. And Mauro, a pleasure and an honor to have the opportunity to talk to you about your new book. The first chapter is called Follow the Babies. The subtitle is Population Drought, the African Baby Boom, and the Next Industrial Revolution. You've touched on the African Baby Boom. Can you say more about the population drought? Yeah, so um, this is all about uh, the fact that instead of having a baby boom in Europe, in the United States, in China, in Japan, now we have a baby bust. And that's for many reasons. The single most important one is that women are now focused on other things, okay? Nice. And, uh, you know, women in particular, as you know, here in the United States, for example, um, represent more than half of the college population. And when women uh, remain in school, they go to college, they pursue not just uh, having a job, but a career, then they postpone having babies. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the consequence, of course, is that then they have, um, over the lifetime, fewer babies. Uh, in most of these uh, parts of the world, including the United States, where this is happening, we are below replacement. In fact, we've been below replacement for 45 years since the 1970s. Remember when Nixon was president, that was the last time that here in the United States, we were above replacement. And this has consequences, uh, many of them positive. For example, women now can have meaningful careers. That's great. But it also has other implications uh, for social security, uh, for population aging. Uh, I don't see this pessimistically. I actually believe there are many opportunities there, but we need to be aware of what the reality is when we've been for so long below replacement level. Mm -hmm. Do you see policy implications for Europe or the United States? Well, of course. I mean, uh, let me just use one illustration that I think will resonate with many people, which is how do we make good on that promise that if people work hard by age you know, 63, 64, 65, they can enjoy a pension? Well, the trustees of Social Security issued a report just a few months ago mm -hmm. saying that in the year 2030, that's another reason why that year is pivotal, uh, the Social Security Fund will be below the uh, financial ratio, the key financial ratio before, uh, below 100%, which means that you cannot guarantee those pensions. You see, the pension system as we know it today, state-sponsored, was invented in Germany under Bismarck. That was 150 years ago. Uh, you know, Bismarck was very smart because life expectancy at the time in Germany was 35, 37 years old. And he promised 
a state pension for people after age 62 or 63, 65. That was a smart politician, not like the ones that we have today, right? Uh, but things have changed. Now, on average, we live um, 80 plus years. And so um, I think we need to redefine, and that's one of the key messages in the book, what is old and what is young, right? Uh, we need to start rethinking those stages in life. Very good. Mike? Yeah, Mara, I'm going to break in. I just need to remind our listeners that this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio's Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Hussein. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, my friend and colleague. And we are speaking with Mauro Guillen, author of a really important new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. And Mauro, I want to move us to, um, well, you've got it numbered here, chapter four. I love the title, Second Sex No More, the subtitle of the new millionaires, entrepreneurs, and leaders of tomorrow. So unpack that one, if you would. Yes, let me uh, point out, by the way, that there is a question mark at the end of the, center of the title of the, uh, which is important uh, because I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing with women is generally a lot of progress in terms of the education, in terms of the labor market opportunities, in terms of how far they can get in all types of organizations, government organizations, nonprofits, and companies. We have more of them uh, reaching the uh, commanding heights of uh, corporations around the world. However, we also see women who are being left behind and uh, women who don't have access to the same kinds of opportunities, even in a country such as the United States. Uh, but the whole point of the chapter, Mike, is this is gonna change the world uh, because women are different. For starters, they live longer on average. And we can come back to that later because as you know, now that they're in bigger numbers in the labor force, actually, their life expectancy is not growing as fast. So there's something about uh, you know, the stress that comes out from uh, you know, working at home as they must and also working outside of the household. Um, but the point here is that um, by the year 2030, women uh, in the world are going to own more than half of the wealth. And by the year 2030, uh, we're going to see here in the United States that in a majority of households, the woman in that household is going to make more money than the man. Today, that percentage is 41%. By the year 2030, most uh, demographers estimate that it's going to be above 50%. So That's going to change history. Everything. Uh, it's going to change everything. I'm covered. I'm very happy. I have two daughters, as you know. So I'm very happy about this development. Uh, but I think we need to prepare for it because we don't want anybody to feel, um, you know, that um, instead of patriarchy, we're going to have matriarchy. I think uh, we need to have an inclusive society. But this change, I think, is perhaps the most important one among those that I describe in the book. So, Mauro, it's a great point. And mapping this into the thinking now of somebody who, say, runs a, a community organization, a hospital, maybe even a, a company, um, you're teaching at our business school where almost um, half now of our MBA students, for example, coming in are women. And for a person who's in a position of responsibility, knowing that this trend is out there, increasing numbers of women are going to be in the ranks, what's the implication for a, let's make it a director of human resources at a, at a let's make it a mid-sized company? What, what should they be thinking about in light of this trend? Yes, yeah, so that's a great question, Mike. And I've been at Wharton, as you know, for uh, 25, 26 years now, and you've been even longer. I believe that actually only Benjamin Franklin has been on campus longer than the two of us have been, right? <laughs> 
but the, the, uh, the, the, the important thing I think is, you know, when I started teaching MBAs, uh, you know, in the 1990s, um, women were only 10%, 12% of the class. And now they're approaching parity. And this essentially means the talent pool has changed. And we need to make sure that not just companies, but society uses that talent effectively. And unfortunately, what women still report, and as you know, some of our colleagues do research on gender discrimination, there's still too many obstacles for women along the way. And I don't think we can fully realize their potential in organizations, in companies. So what is it that HR managers uh, should do? I think uh, they should work very hard to remove uh, most of those obstacles uh, because otherwise we would be wasting now more than half of the talent pool. I mean, remember in the United States, more than half of college graduates now are women. Uh, so this is becoming like a, I think, a national issue right now. It's like, uh, it would be, uh, the business case I think is very clear. It's how can we actually make those investments that we've made in human capital, uh, more than half of them are women now, work for all of us, for the economy. Yep. And we need to change everything from the culture perhaps to uh, having more programs uh, for mentoring women in organizations. Uh, that's what my colleagues who do research on this tell me. And also, by the way, uh, we need to go back to the issue about babies. And uh, there are women who want to have a working life, but they also want to have babies. So we need to make sure that the mechanisms are in place for them to be able to achieve that. Here, here, Anne, over to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Mike. How about a follow-up, um, Mauro? If you see a shift in 2030 to more than half of the population is female, do you sh see a shift from a patriarchy to a, a matriarchy? Or do you see those women adopting the values and norms of the patriarchy in order to assimilate? Yes, yeah, so uh, this is a great question. And Ian, uh, the research that I have read on this, most of it points in the direction that there is the so-called regression to the mean, meaning that yes. women, uh, like any other group, when they change their um, life experience and they start becoming more similar for example, in terms of the kinds of jobs that they have, right. with the other half of the population, in this case men, then they tend to converge, right? So men and women tend to converge on one <laughs> another. This is what we observe everywhere. So that convergence though happens very slowly, mm -hmm. extremely slowly. So it takes um, you know, many years. Uh, we would need to go beyond 2030. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're seeing that convergence in many ways. We've seen that convergence, for example, in terms of life expectancy. I mean, you know women live longer than men, but you see since the 1970s, the advantage that women have over men in life expectancy here in the United States has been coming down. Uh, so it used to be 7.7 uh, .7 years of advantage, but now it's only five. And by the year 2030, it will be 4.3 here in the United States. That's the estimates, right? So that's just one example of convergence. But having said that, let me just tell you one thing. We're still seeing in this pandemic, for example, that female leaders, political leaders, I mean, yes. are actually doing a far better job. Uh, so um, hopefully they won't converge on uh, male leaders in terms of their incompetence, right? When it comes to dealing with a crisis such as a pandemic. And I'm not indicting all men. Of course, there are some right. male politicians or heads of state or prime ministers in the world that have done uh, a far better job than others. There's a lot of heterogeneity out there. However, uh, mm -hmm. I think the media have correctly pointed out that the few 
women prime ministers or uh, heads of state that we have in the world have generally done a pretty good job at dealing with the pandemic. And I'll tell you why. We know from research, especially experimental research, that women are more risk averse than men. They right. follow the directions of uh, the authorities, uh, of the health uh, care experts uh, more closely. Uh, they're better listeners, right? This is what the research shows. There will be convergence, no doubt, right? It's called regression to the mean. It's a very powerful law, okay? <laughs> but having said that, I think at least during my lifetime, there will continue to be very important differences. And some of them will manifest themselves in the area of leadership. Oh, wonderful. Mauro, thank you so much. Mike. Mauro, we're going to take a break in just a couple of minutes, but I do want to bring in the very intriguing title of your last chapter and just get us going on that for a few minutes. Here it is without a question mark, printing your own money. Somehow I'm totally intrigued. I'm going to read that chapter in detail first, even though it comes last. Uh, subtitle is Trust, Convenience, and the Digital Republic. So what's going on with printing our own money? Yeah. So look, um, as you know, anybody can print money. The question is whether other people will want to use your money, right? Yeah. So money was, if you remember, a Chinese invention, really, uh, in its current form. So without any precious metals, okay? So no gold, no silver. Marco Polo went to China in the 1300s, and he was... Uh, you know, just uh, shocked by the fact that paper money was circulating in China. So there was no gold, no anything to it. So the purpose of that chapter is to show that anybody can print money, but look, governments are not going to give up their monopoly. So if you really want to see money work, um, by money, I mean cryptocurrencies. I mean, you know, the kind of money that we're discussing these days, digital currencies. It has to be much more than a substitute for legal tender. It has to also include features of what uh, has been called the digital republic. So meaning that it also helps us, for example, save the environment, um, engage in behavior that is pro-environmental, uh, that it also helps us uh, vote in elections. So rather than digital money, think about digital tokens, right? Uh, supported by this fancy technology called the blockchain. That's the way to go. I don't think governments will ever tolerate pure digital currencies because they want to hold on to that monopoly, right? And perhaps for a good reason, right? The Federal Reserve plays a pivotal role in the economy. But if uh, entrepreneurs, if uh, corporations, um, you know, uh, get together and they produce something that is much more useful to people than just uh, pure money, then I think that has a chance of succeeding. And just to stay on that for a minute more, let's go to 2030 now. These... Uh, Cryptocurrencies, blockchain technologies, and so on are coming. And in 2030, I'm just going to make a forecast, especially in business, but maybe well beyond, most transactions are going to be conducted somehow with digital currencies. Uh, physical money is going to be interesting. It'll be in the Smithsonian for sure. And it will be a kind of a curiosity. We carry some around. But my own forecast, uh, picking up on some of the things you've been arguing, is by 2030, we're going to a world of um, uh, PayPal and all kinds of uh, methods akin to PayPal, uh, not only um, C to C, not only I, I give you $10 uh, for whatever, but B to B as well. What, what do you think? What, what's 2030 got uh, in store? Look, I, I'm, I'm very happy, Michael, to, uh, to see that uh, you started to make uh, predictions about the year 2030. That's exactly the uh, mindset that, that I would like people to have. So I completely agree with you. 
And why am I so confident in that? Well, look, um, you, there are parts of the world where that reality is already uh, in existence. I teach, as you do, and work in executive education, and frequently we have programs with uh, bankers, right, in the room. And I always tell them, uh, look, uh, you've been asking me about the future. What's the future of banking? What's going to happen with money and all of that? And I tell them, look, you don't have to wait to the year 2030. Just go to Africa. They're no longer using cash, right? They don't have any ATMs. They're using actually quite primitive cell phones, right? The Nokia-style cell phones to move money around. They've been doing this for at least eight or nine years in very large numbers. So the future is already a reality in some parts of the world. But of course, in our part of the world, with all of the legacy systems, with all of the inertia, we find it very difficult. We're still using personal checks. The other day, I just mailed a check, right? Um, the last innovation here in the banking sector really was ATMs. And ATMs were first installed in the 1960s. I mean, banks need to get their act together, right? And I completely agree with you that by the year 2030, we're going to have a digital, uh, you know, uh, cash uh, uh, payment system in place in, in all over the world. Um, you know, and uh, unfortunately, some of our biggest competitors like China is also well ahead of us. Why did you pick 2030? We've already talked on that, but here's the question. Why did you write the book in 2020? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so look, I started doing the research for this book about seven years ago. I was, uh, like you, uh, have been teaching at Wharton, uh, all sorts of students from undergrads all the way to executives. And I sensed, uh, uh, you know, about seven years ago that people were very concerned about what was going on in the world and they couldn't make sense out of it. And so I thought, okay, let me uh, prepare a presentation about that. And for three or four years, I market tested that presentation. And then I decided there's a book here. Uh, so I started writing the book about three years ago. Now, the pandemic has intervened, of course. But why publishing this in the year 2020? Well, because I think of all things right now, everyone uh, from ordinary people all the way to our uh, you know, biggest leaders, uh, they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're trying to make sense out of what's going on. And that's what the book, I hope, accomplishes, which is to give you a way of a handle, right, uh, for understanding where is it that we may be uh, in the near future, 10 years down the road. That's the reason why I wrote it. And I think, um, you know, the pandemic, of course, is such a uh, devastating um, event uh, for all sorts of people uh, around the world. Um, but what this pandemic is uh, actually confirming to me is that, look, I mean, those trends that have been going on for a while that will reach critical levels by 2030, most of them the pandemic accelerates, intensifies, right? With only a couple of exceptions, and we can also talk about that. So I feel that um, this is a, actually a good moment, uh, in spite of the tragedy surrounding us, is a good moment to take a stock of where we're going as a society, uh, as a company, as a community, and also as individuals. Uh, that's the purpose of the book. So Marl, here's my kind of quick editorial comment on that. Uh, you cite one of our colleagues, George Day, who has written extensively on lateral thinking, kind of thinking outside your own office, your own city, think laterally. He's also written a lot on thinking strategically and to be a lateral thinker and a strategic thinker, just picking up in your argument, you really got to know where the world is going if you're going to successfully get yourself there and the people who depend upon you for moving ahead. So with that editorial comment, Anne, over to you. Oh, thank you, Mike. 
Well, Mauro, you've covered, we've talked about uh, the baby boom and bust. We've talked about the rise of women in leadership positions, changes in currency. I'm really curious about your second chapter, Gray is the New Black. Can you talk about aging? Yes, so uh, Gray is the New Black is a direct consequence of the baby bust that we're going through. So in other words, we have, um, uh, you know, as a percentage of the total population, more and more people above the age of 60. And that's the gray population. Um, so much so that in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, in China, by the year 2030, the biggest consumer segment in the market is going to be the population above age 60 for the first time in history. Let me put it in another way. We're going to have in many countries around the world, including the United States, by the year 2030, more grandparents than grandchildren. That has never happened, ever. Uh, it's new territory. Uh, I think it poses political challenges, economic challenges, but it's also a great opportunity because you know what? A 70-year-old or an 80-year-old today is not like a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. People stay in much better shape, both mentally and physically. So I think that what we really need to think about is not so much uh, about the negative consequences of population aging, but rather about the new opportunities and horizons that open up, right? If people turn 60, and by the way, today, about 12,000 Americans are celebrating their 60th birthday. Wow. About 12,000. It's about 210,000 in the world as a whole today, right? Mm -hmm. So that's an important group. And what we need to do is to revisit these notions of what is young and what is old. We need to essentially do away with that, that idea that life progresses in stages. First we go to school, then we work, then we retire. I think uh, given what's going on, we may have to go back to school several times because things are changing very fast and lives are so much longer now, right? Retiring in the 60s, when you're in the 60s, I think makes sense in some occupations, but for most of us, it doesn't make any sense because you still have another 25 years on average of life expectancy. Uh, in some countries, even more than that. Uh, so is this a challenge? Sure. But it's a huge opportunity. I mean, I want to put an optimistic spin on it because I believe, I strongly believe it's a huge opportunity. But it is something that companies will need to pay attention to. And we can also get into that. Because once again, the biggest consumer segment in the market is going to be the gray segment. Gray is the new black, right? Well, Mara, on that note of companies needing, needing to pay attention, I know that your book is looking forward into the future, but I'm wondering if there are lessons in the past, and I'm thinking in particular of the time when Japan went through a period in which there were more elderly people than younger people. Was that the 80s? Am I remembering right? Yeah, no. Well, Japan is perhaps the first country, or at least the first big economy in the world to get into this situation in which uh, they have a, an age pyramid, right? That looks much, much bigger at the top than at the bottom, right? Uh, which is uh, something that has uh, really never happened before. Um, so Japan is ahead of us, uh, but you see Japan had a relatively easy way out of that, which was that, as you know, when women used to marry in Japan, they would actually withdraw from the labor force. Uh, so Japan, in spite of all of the problems that they continue to have, as you know, they're stagnant economically, they did have a safety valve there, which they opened in the last 20 years or so, which is they encouraged married women 
to go back to the labor force, something that never happened you know, in the 50s, in the 60s, uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, we don't have that luxury here, unfortunately. On the other hand, uh, our situation is not as extreme as Japan's. Uh, but I think uh, from the point of view of companies though, uh, you know, I think um, uh, uh, the gray population is actually uh, a boom uh, from two points of view. First is those people have experience. Um, if uh, you provide them with the opportunity to work part-time, maybe from their home. So that's how remote work now may actually be a, a great yeah. development. They were going to be willing. Uh, maybe they need to make some extra money because the uh, uh, pension is not enough or they mm -hmm. didn't save enough. Uh, but also as consumers, remember, I, I'm always shocked at, uh, you know, reading uh, marketing um, studies or surveys uh, from 10 years ago by, you know, the leading companies in the world in that uh, uh, type of consulting. And they were saying that companies don't stock, for example, clothing in their stores that is good for people above the age of 60 because they felt that could damage their brand image. <laughs> now, companies need to change that mindset, right? Because once again, they cannot ignore what is about to become the largest segment. In the United States, listen to this, 80% of the net worth is owned by people above the age of 60. 80%. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody above the age of 60 is wealthy. Of course not. There's a lot of inequality at all, in all age groups in the United States. But it is remarkable. It's the highest percentage in the world. Most other countries is like between 50 and 60% of the net worth. So this is a demographic that we can no longer ignore. You see, politicians here were ahead of the curve. They learned a long time ago that the most reliable voters are people of a certain age. They show up, you know, and they vote. Um, and I think companies now finally are waking up to this new reality in which they can no longer ignore the population above age 60. Mike, do I have time for a follow-up? Uh, yeah. Okay. And Mauro, you're starting to talk a little bit about um, wealth, and that makes me think of upper class, middle class, lower class. Can you talk a little bit about your third chapter, Keeping Up with the Sings and the Wangs? Yes. So this is a play, of course, on keeping up with the Joneses. Mm -hmm. uh, so for the longest time, the last uh, hundred years or so, we've had uh, mass consumer markets in the world, primarily in the US and Europe. And that was the middle class consumer, right? That was the protagonist. Um, you know, everything that has happened in the global economy over the last hundred years has had something to do with the middle class consumer, primarily in Europe, the United States, maybe Japan and a couple of other countries. I shouldn't forget about Canada, Australia, New Zealand and so on. But now the situation is very different. Uh, the middle classes in Europe and the United States are stagnant. They're not growing numerically. And in fact, their purchasing power has also stagnated. And instead, what we have is this, you know, first generation middle class in emerging markets, China, India, but many other markets as well. And that class is growing numerically. Uh, every year they add, you know, about 80 million people to the middle class, okay, every year. And their average purchasing power is also growing from year to year. And by the way, the pandemic will only accelerate that because emerging markets on average will do better out of this, uh, you know, coming out of this recession. That's uh, what all of the forecasts are telling us. So our middle class, which is a, for the most part, the fourth generation, even fifth generation middle class is stagnant, but theirs is not. So we're gonna have to, you know, learn how to be the second biggest market in the world, consumer market because by 2030, the Chinese middle-class consumer market will be the largest. And by 2045, and this is something that Mike has studied, 
uh, you know, he has a couple of books, one on China, one on India, right? India will actually become the largest market, right? By, by 2045 or so. Um, so the world is changing rapidly. And I think uh, companies, will, 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 they're going to have to adjust because, you see, companies think about new products in terms of the largest market in the world. So for the last 100 years, they've been thinking about the American consumer. Uh, banks also think that way. Uh, product standards, government regulations, all of those rules are written by the largest market. And the U.S. is no longer going to be the largest market. And it's not yet the reality, but it will be by the year 2030. So we're going to have, once again, to adjust to that situation. And companies already know that. I mean, you see right now a lot of product innovations coming out of China, especially those that have to do with the digital age. So things are changing. Uh, I don't think this means that the American consumer will be worse off, but we need to change our mindset. We need to adjust to that new reality. That's the point. Oh, Thank you, Mara. This, this is great. I just want to remind listeners, this is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Nassim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. And we are speaking actively with Mauro Gayen, author of the new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. And Mauro, I'm going to ask you about one more very intriguing chapter title and theme in your book. You've got nine chapters, the titles for everyone. Very intriguing because they're, they're picking up on these enormous trends that are going to be important. And then we're going to uh, move a little bit, uh, in fact, as we conclude, towards thinking about the implications of what you've written about and what you've said for people who are in positions of responsibility. They might be leading uh, a small community group. They could be the, at the head of a big company. The chapter I'm going to refer to here, though, now, how about this for an intriguing title, without a question mark, more cell phones than toilets. So what should we worry about on that one? <laughs> yeah, that's a um, um, really a factoid. Uh, but it's a true fact. It's not fake news, meaning that we have in the world about a billion more people who have uh, a cell phone, so not necessarily a smartphone, but at least a cell phone, than people who have or live in a, a dwelling that is equipped with a toilet and therefore is connected to the sewer system. And I think this tells us a lot about priorities. So people these days, maybe they prefer to be connected digitally because it helps them uh, perform their jobs. It helps them get information. It helps them in so many different ways. Uh, but this is also, I think, something about emerging markets, right? Because that statistic is mostly due to what's going on in South Asia, including India, by the way, and Sub-Saharan Africa. But I think when it comes to leadership, Mike, I think uh, the, the, the issue is, uh, is the following. Um, so I'm not expecting governments to fix that problem. Uh, but I would uh, expect entrepreneurs to fix that problem. And in the book, I refer to one such entrepreneur who has launched a waterless toilet, right? Mm -hmm. So she spent, this is a woman, she spent a long time researching the toilet industry. As you know, there's been no innovation in it for the last 300 years. But she didn't invent the, toy, the waterless toilet, but she made it practical from a, an economic point of view. And, uh, you know, she... Um, put together a coalition of foundations and governments to try to uh, bring that waterless toilet to those uh, households in many parts of the world, developing world that don't have it. Uh, that represents a huge increase in quality of life. Uh, and also, by the way, hygiene and uh, protection against uh, diseases and all of that, if you have uh, a way of, uh, of disposing of the waste, so to speak. Uh, so I think it's a, it is a leadership issue at the end of the day. You see, uh, and, and in the book, I have so many other examples that we have the technology. We have the knowledge, 
we're just lacking the purpose. We're lacking the leadership to implement very easy solutions that I think would improve the lives of not just millions of people, hundreds of millions of people in the world. And I think we owe it to them. So Mara, I'm gonna uh, pick up on that and maybe put a couple words around it. And then we, Anne and I got a couple final questions. I know we're gonna sum up together. I'm gonna invite you to join in the after action review with Anne and myself. Here's the question as you think about people in positions of responsibility, A, they need to be informed. They gotta understand where the world is going before they get there for sure. That's what your book does so well. It's kind of late, it's got a great roadmap on, on where we're all probably gonna head in the next 10 years. And then my question is this, of the nine different themes that you develop with nine chapters there in the book, Right now, 2020, what do you think uh, a person in a position of responsibility should be most focused on? Well, what are the two or three areas that are of most emergent or immediate interest for them to pay attention to? What do you think? Well, let me answer the question in two ways. Uh, so um, the more general way of answering the question is, I think those people who are in positions of responsibility, whether it is the government, or it's a political candidate running for office, or it's a, a leader of a business corporation, what they need to do is to be truthful about one thing, which is that they cannot promise that we can go back to five years ago, 10 years ago. There's no going back. Um, you know, there's no way we can reset the clock. Uh, the clock is ticking, and things are moving in a direction that we're still trying to figure out. And promising to your employees, promising to your voters that uh, you will bring things back to where they were, I think is an empty promise because it's not possible. So that's the first thing and the, the way I would answer the question in a more general way. But more specifically, what I think they need to do is do their homework. It's something as simple as that. And this applies to all of us, right? So what do I mean by doing our homework uh, or by leaders doing their homework? What they need to understand is that there are a number of key decisions that at such a moment in history we need to make. Because if we don't make the right decisions, I think we may be going down the wrong path. And those decisions necessarily mean that you have to adopt a slightly longer time frame, right? And again, we're going back to where we started. Why 10 years, right? I'm very happy, I'm very proud of the fact that I've persuaded at least two or three companies uh, when I work with them in terms of instead of having a five-year plan, which by the way, sounds very Soviet to me, right? Um, <laughs> is to have a 10-year plan, right? So when they meet all of the top executives once a year, they have a retreat, you know, I've persuaded them that maybe they think they need to think about 10 years as opposed to five years. Because whenever there's so much transformations going on, you have to raise your side, your perspective a little bit. So once again, as you pointed out, Mike, a 100-year plan is overkill. I don't think that's workable. But I think a three-year plan, a five-year plan, that is not enough. So that's my second message is you have to, so maybe it's eight years, maybe it's not 10 years, but I don't think four, five years is enough because the scale of the transformations we're going through, whether you look at technology, whether you look at population, whether you look at emerging markets, it's so vast that we really need a little bit more time to adjust. So just think about that. 
okay, I figure out where the world is going to be in five years. Do I have enough time to adjust? Probably not. But if you tell me 10 years, I think we do have enough time to adjust. Great. Fantastic. And do you want to bring in one more question and then we're going to do our summing up? Very good. Yes, just really briefly, Mara, we haven't touched on global warming. And I'm I'm just wondering if you could comment on the impact on cities, suburbs, countryside. Yeah, so that's a uh, great uh, topic, uh, very dear to my heart. And the chapter in the book is titled, if you remember, Cities Drown First. Yes. Look, um, three basic facts today. Cities occupy 1% of the land in the world. They're home to 55% of the population, and that number is growing, of course, but they account for 80% of the carbon emissions. There's no solution to the climate problem unless we fix the cities. Now, unfortunately, this is the one trend that the pandemic uh, reverses, as you know, with, I think, uh, painful consequences, because a lot of people are reconsidering in the US and Europe uh, their uh, place of residence, uh, and they're moving outside of cities. I think it's unfortunate because we may see huge fiscal crisis in cities as a result. However, that doesn't deny the fact that we need to rethink our cities because the problems, environmental problems, are driven by the urban population. Um, by the way, in Africa, 30% of the food that they produce is produced within the boundaries of cities. <laughs> we need to do that now <laughs> because uh, turning cities into producers of food will reduce carbon emissions. Uh, will have many beneficial impacts. So in other words, and I think Mike uh, will remember this, we need to go back to the Liberty Gardens. You remember those, uh, Mike? World War II, when people were growing tomatoes in their backyard in cities, uh, or even in pots at home, uh, out of necessity. We need to do that because uh, urban agriculture, vertical agriculture, by the way, is the most technologically advanced version of it. That is... Uh, a very important tool for the future if we want to address urban crisis and at the same time the climate uh, problem. All right, Thank Mark. you. This has been great. As I mentioned at the outset, we're going to do a very brief three-way after-action review. And we're going to start with you. I'm going to jump in and then Maura, we're going to give you the final word. And the basic point here is to let listeners know our final thinking to help their final thinking. And all right, very good. Well, I'm, I'm very um, heartened by all that you've said, Mauro, although embedded in the conversation is what we could see as, as bad news. <laughs> we in the United States will not be the dominant market. But what I'm hearing you say is uh, look forward and see the future realistically and honestly. You're going to take a fall. You cannot control that but you can control how you fall. So face it and make uh, proactive decisions that will make the best of future opportunities. Uh, that is correct. And let me add one thing, which is that the living standards of Americans or Europeans for that matter, need not suffer as a result of these changes, uh, but we need to come to terms with them. And by the way, we should not isolate ourselves from the emerging markets. If the emerging markets are going to grow faster, what we should be doing is doing business with them so right. that we can actually benefit from their faster rate of growth. So I want to make a pitch here for, you know, um, essentially becoming even more cosmopolitan than we were, yes. as opposed to more isolated, because we have everything to gain with our technology, with our, uh, you know, experience, and also with our openness, right, and our culture, 
uh, we can play in this global economy and we can benefit if we, uh, you know, essentially find a way of, uh, you know, um, following those rapidly evolving, rapidly growing emerging markets. So Mara, let me take that as a perfect segue into my final point as well. Uh, these are three themes that I've picked up from our conversation and your book as well. You want us to think big. You want us to think forward. You want us to think laterally and you want us, want us to think strategically uh, if we're in a leadership position. And maybe a way to sum up that point, here's my final thought. We want to bring the future into the present and then take steps to meet that future in ways that make sense. We can't do that if we don't understand what's going on likely in 2030. Marl, with one minute to go, a final thought from you. My final thought is very simple, right? And it's more about uh, ordinary people than leaders. Uh, because I actually believe in a, an idea that you have uh, presented uh, uh, extremely well, Mike, uh, which is the idea of leading up, right? So how is it that all of us, right, as consumers, as investors, as workers, uh, can help in this transformation? And here's the message from the very uh, last few pages in the book. In the midst of all of this change, think very carefully how, about how you make decisions. And the rule of thumb should be, don't make any decision that is irreversible. When there's so much change, sure, make decisions. I mean, you don't have to freeze your decision-making. Uh, you don't have to change everything in your life either. Don't go to the extremes. Make no decisions that are irreversible. Always think about the fact that you may be forced to pivot, to change the decision that you make today, tomorrow, because <coughs> the world may have changed. Mauro, it's been great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Morrill's book, of course, is uh, at all the usual online and in-person booksellers, so easily found. You can find out more about him by coming to the Wharton website. I'm Mike Hussein. You've been listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 